Welcome to Biota Live. This is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information, biota.org slash podcast. If you would like to call in and you're listening via Blog Talk Radio Live, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. There is also a chat room available through Blog Talk Radio, so you can get to that page through biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hello. Hello, hello, first caller. Yes, it's Gerald. Hello, Gerald. Good to talk to you. Yeah. So we have some news and notes which feature you as well. I believe we have uh, a second caller who may be Justin Lyon. Hello, Justin. That's correct. Hello, how are you? Very well, very well. So uh, we have some news and notes which uh, features both of you. Um, but to start off with, the next episode will be recorded Friday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Pacific, and the topic is Where's the Secret Source? This was somewhat submitted by Grace on Boston's Adam Erimenko, but it was based on some correspondence he sent me about whether there exists or there will exist a proprietary technology that will change the landscape of artificial life development. And Adam had some thinking that it may already exist, and this may be the reason that certain participants haven't participated in uh, the biota experience. Um, but uh, I think it raises some interesting methodological questions that will be discussed in full next Friday at 8 p.m. Pacific. So, moving on from that, Graysome News. Uh, I'm going to start with the Graysome News of, of participants not on the call currently. Graysome Boston will have a meeting next Monday, April 7th, uh, Self-Organizing Traffic Controllers by Carlos Gershenson, and also Biota Live CDs will be handed out at that event as well. So I've got to get a, a two-page document to Brian to put up at the start of the meeting with regards to getting folks collaborating and contributing to the Biota experience. If you are listening to this podcast for the first time, having attended a Graytham Boston meeting when you received the CDs, thank you very much for listening in. Hopefully this will be a, an exemplary episode of the kind of things that Biota Live can offer. Two bits of news associated with other Graytham chapters, Graytham Silicon Valley and Graytham Los Angeles. I posted on the Graytham blog, which you can get to by Gray, G-R-E-Y-T-H-U-M-B, org slash blog. Uh, the Silicon Valley chapter, I've had some correspondence with Bruce Damer and Jeffrey Rentrella, both of whom have obviously appeared on this podcast quite a bit, uh, about the Silicon Valley chapter. It looks like they're going to um, conduct a meeting in San Francisco, possibly sometime in May. And Graytham Los Angeles, obviously, Travis Savo, who's been on this podcast previously, is setting up a Los Angeles group. And I've had some correspondence from some friends in Australia that have contacts in uh, both LA and Silicon Valley who are interested in attending. Justin, Graysum London, you had a, a meeting a couple of weeks ago. How did it go? It was a lot of fun. We had Gerald speaking uh, remotely from Rotterdam, talking about the Darwin at Home program, project that he's been working on for a number of years. We also had Herbert Daly um, from the United Kingdom speaking about multi-model simulations and the implications for artificial life. They each spoke for about 40 minutes. We went a little bit long this time, uh, but that was okay. People were interested. We had a very good dialogue. And I'm now trying to sort out a way to actually videotape and um, record these. Every The last two times I've tried to record it and I've run into technical difficulties um, with it affecting the sound quality for some unknown reason. But hopefully on the third one, we'll actually get a videotape or at the very least an audio recording so we can share it with the larger community. Certainly, certainly. And um, was the second speaker, um, sorry, I don't have him in my notes. Is it Herbert someone? Herbert Daly, D-A-L-Y. I yes. can send you... Oh, no, um, I've I had correspondence with him. I've had correspondence with him. So he may be a future biota chat as well. Um, so I'd, I'd like to uh, to welcome him to the Biota Correspondence Community. And similarly, if you talk at one of these Graytham events, you may actually be invited on Biota in the future. So please keep that in mind. And folks who are listening who would like to participate in any of these Graytham chapters with regards to presentation or if they know people in the areas mentioned, uh, please get in contact. So do you have anyone slated for the next meeting, Justin? Not yet, and I actually had an idea that I wanted to float out to the community, which was perhaps we could schedule the um, Graytham to be around the same time that the San Francisco team is meeting, um, although the time difference may make that very problematic, 
Um, but I'm actually looking for some contributions or suggestions from the community as who the, uh, the speaker for the third Great Thumb London should be. Um, I've organized the first two, and I think it's time now for me to shift some of that responsibility out to others out there who probably have some good suggestions for people that could make it over to London for the third Great Thumb. Oh, no, Justin's dropped off the call. Okay, well, hopefully Justin will call back in. Uh, Gerald, you, you have potentially Great Thumb Netherlands-related news. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to uh, get something set up, that's for sure. I've got uh, several people in, uh, interested already, and I've got a potential venue, a really, really interesting, nice place to meet if we get the opportunity to uh, get enough people together. So I'm sort of scouring the Dutch landscape right now, looking for people who might be interested. Yes, I'm sure there are probably a number of locations. Justin has rejoined us. So, Gerald, you also gave a demonstration recently at the architecture firm where you have been working on Fridays. In terms of, I mean, is this the, the end of your time there, or are you continuing to, to spend Fridays at the architecture firm? Yeah, well, I, I've become addicted to it, I'm afraid. I, um, I, I decided a week ago that it was time to, uh, to take a step. So what I've done is I've rented my space there, so I'm going to stay there now. Very nice. So, you, But you're going to be staying there for five days a week as opposed to just Friday. That's right. Wonderful, wonderful. So in terms of what you've learned so far, um, what's the kind of general report to, to artificial life developers about the architecture community and, and integrating our kind of collective efforts? Well, there, there's a number of things that are you know, top on the agenda, uh, although it's, it can be a little difficult to find uh, in, in the architecture world. And they're very relevant, interesting things. I mean, the, the top architects are really thinking green nowadays because, uh, they, you know, they're seriously considering uh, sustainability and, uh, you know, long-term. You know, architects have to think a little bit more in the long term. And um, I uh, received, a, 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 together with some feedback from a fellow who's uh, associated with the Technical University in Delft, I got a... A sort of a, um, a speech uh, that was in a booklet, and it was written. It was it was just recently given at the, the University of Delft by somebody who was just inaugurated uh, as a professor there, and the subject material was just so strikingly uh, familiar to to what I what I've been you know working around on my own. Uh, it was just amazing. So this is a, this is going to be a, a connection. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I'll eventually be able to present at the Technical University of Delft and uh, and maybe get some uh, some more interesting eyeballs looking at it because uh, that, this is the, this is these are the kind of people I want to connect with. Certainly, certainly. I thought what was particularly fascinating about your presentation was that it was perfectly tailored to the artificial life curious as opposed to the artificial life obsessive. In, in a few words, can you talk a little bit about how you put together the presentation and your thinking in that regard? Well, when you give a presentation, you've always got to keep the audience in mind. You know, if, if it was an audience of programmers or an audience of artificial life enthusiasts, I would have done a completely different uh, kind of talk. But this was a, a group of people gathered together to you know, think about architecture and talk about possible new uh, assignments that, that the company might do and stuff like this. So... It, it was a crowd that, you know, not even, uh, inter it's an introduction for them in a lot of ways. So I had to I had to be careful and go slowly, especially because I did it in English uh, instead of Dutch. I had to really, you know, take it easy and, and go from scratch. And uh, interestingly enough, the feedback is from, from friends of mine who have seen it has been that uh, finally they understand what the hell I'm doing, <laughs> which is good to hear. And, and for other folks interested in understanding what the hell you're doing, it's, it's currently hosted on darwinathome.org, isn't it? Yeah. The video of the talk. So folks interested yeah. can go to darwinathome.org and check out the video of, of Gerald talking to architects. I thought the stuff at the end, particularly the kind of questions and the interaction at the end, was, um, and I could see you immediately kind of sensing the reward of giving the talk at the end of the talk. So the, the conclusion and the conversation uh, towards the end is, is particularly interesting. The thing that's coming up in architecture, which is so interesting, is the idea of uh, designs that are uh, sort of too complex to design. That sort of stuff is coming out. And if, it, if you can involve evolution to always keep an eye on the cost during the, you know, the multi-generation design cycle, then, uh, then you can you know, potentially really break some ground in, in efficiencies. This is a, a very relevant topic, and I'm just sort of scratching the surface of it, but uh, 
eventually. Yeah, who knows? Certainly. Well, I look forward to, to frequent reports from you on, on the front line, so to speak, with regards to this. And if uh, if there would be any benefit in this doing uh, BiotaLives in the future and inviting uh, people that you know in the community on to, to talk about it in the BiotaLive forum, I think certainly the, the folks listening in currently would be very interested in hearing that discussion. Speaking of which, um, well, a few things. The Biota mailing lists have been going crazy of late, particularly the Biota Conversations mailing list. So folks who aren't yet connected to the Biota Conversations mailing list and like this podcast should check out biota.org. At the top, there's a mailing list link, and you can link up to the Biota Conversations. If you're interested in contributing a topic to Biota Live, folks contributing a topic to Biota Live via email, tom at noblape.com, have the option of selecting one of four books, The Ancestor's Tale by Richard Dawkins, I Was, Steve Wozniak and Gina Smith, Ever Since Darwin by Stephen Jay Gould, and The Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy are all up and available for folks who want to contribute topics. Now, we had a subtopic contributed this week by William uh, Kentler, who's in Australia, with regards to hierarchical temporal memory. And I sent out the um, required reading list to the <laughs> participants today. Gerald, in your reading with regards to hierarchical temporal memory, what was your what was your thinking with regards to it? Well, I uh, I didn't really get so far that I sort of tried it out. I did download it, but I didn't get to the point where I really tried it out and, and put it to a test. I think it was pretty early at the time too. But I had just read um, his book on intelligence. And uh, that was, you know, one of those books. It, it blew me away. What, what in particular blew you away about it? Well, his approach of uh, seriously looking at human uh, neurological science for for inspiration, while you know, at, in in designing a way that uh, that you can make a totally adaptive sort of thinking system, and uh, you know, to actually go back to the, the science of, of what happens in our gray matter and, and uh, you know, take a serious look at the, the mode of connectivity and, and the way that information travels around uh, for hints as to how to design it, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in a you know, virtual situation. Justin, are you familiar with hierarchical temporal memory at all? You're talking about uh, from Numenta? Yes. Yeah. Um, I know a little bit about it, yes. Um, I think that there's an interesting co- uh, complementarity between Numenta's work and some of the work that has been going on in our community. Uh, I don't see it as competitive, but more complementary. Why? The email subtopic was that we should discuss it with regards to the collective participants. I mean, certainly my own reading, it, the thing that immediately hit me was neat from Ken Stanley, and obviously Ken Stanley was interviewed in an earlier podcast, but it's, it's certainly a far more applied uh, use of uh, neural networks than NEAT is. I think its utilization in industry is pretty clear. But in terms of kind of traditional artificial life models, I think we would probably take a large portion of the processing end and then just do different kinds of manipulation. In any case, I'm, I'm not sure, William, whether we've covered this topic to the degree of detail that you wanted. We may actually cover it in a full episode in the future, but with the benefit of Justin on the line in particular. Justin, you had one final bit of um, Simudine-related news, didn't you? You have a new fellow on the board of directors. I guess I'll make it official now and, and for the public to know. Um, there's uh, a gentleman named Peter Cochran um, who is uh, going to be helping us moving forward with Simudine. For those that don't know, Peter Cochran is, I would say, quite famous, actually, within the technology space uh, around artificial life artificial intelligence simulation. Um, previously, he was the chief technology officer and head of research and development for uh, BT, British Telecom, as it used to be called. Um, he's also part of the TTI Vanguard Advisory Board, which includes other luminaries in the technology space, such as Gordon Bell, Nicholas Negroponte, um, uh, and others that are quite famous. If you just look up TTI Vanguard, you'll see him on there and some of the other people. And he'll be helping us effectively uh, communicate uh, the technology that, that we're developing along with a lot of other people uh, to the business community so that we can uh, finally, after many, many years, begin to monetize uh, the tremendous hard work that simulation scientists and artificial life developers have uh, put into this. Certainly the linking Venn, aside from Douglas Adams, is Chris Winter. And for folks interested in Chris Winter, who used to have some connection with regards to evangelizing artificial life at BT, 
go to biota.org slash podcast and click on the Biota 2 link. I think Chris Winter's talk at Biota 2 certainly was the most resonant with regards to these issues which are very contemporary um, in terms of uh, monetizing and also developing the ideas for business applications. But the topic today is artificial life startups, and I think we all have uh, startup resumes in some regard. But Justin, you in particular, I mean, you've had a number of startups. You've had a startup that's gone to IPO. Can you characterize your startup experience for the podcast? Exhausting. Just, <laughs> it just makes you really tired. It's hard work. It just, it just gets really busy is what happens. You, 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 I mean, if you think about it, um, the amount of time that you spend on the actual idea and the science and the actual, if you will, core, you know, original technology, when you compare that to the amount of time that you invest and the money that you invest in actually marketing it, the, you know, setting up the finance group to actually, you know, make sure the money is not being spent, you know, stupidly, you know, making sure that the shareholders understand how the money is being spent, you know, communicating, um, and selling what it is you're trying to take to the markets, you know, in terms of the commercial markets, not the financial markets, uh, and just all the process and legal and accounting and all that sort of nonsense, which is critically important to be successful, just takes up an incredible amount of time. <clears throat> so I think that, you know, from my perspective, you know, you know, starting a, you know, creating a startup, it's that <clears throat> a lot of people think that the hard work is actually coming up with the technology, and that is true. Innovation is difficult. But it's tremendously time-consuming actually getting money in the door from clients who want to use your technology and having a business model that actually scales and, and is profitable and generates, you know, the, the kinds of revenues that you want it to generate. Yeah, that certainly gets an amen from me, particularly with regards to the time vacuum components of things like dealing with lawyers and these kind of things. I mean, that is certainly my startup experience. Gerald, do you consider Beautiful Code, was that ever a startup? <clears throat> not, a, not a startup in the sense of uh, venture capital. And uh, basically, Beautiful Code has always been a way for me to uh, easily work for people. Uh, but not, uh, I haven't made any money in, the, yeah, in this domain. This has always been something I did uh, while I was in the train and uh, in evenings and weekends. And, and I reserved also a couple of months from time to time. To, uh, to get working on it further. And actually, uh, a couple of years ago, I received a subsidy from the Dutch government to uh, work on it for a while. Yes, I mean, certainly there are some advantages in certain systems to set up small enterprises to uh, cover these kind of things. I think really the topic for discussion today more relates to the kind of startup experience that Justin has talked about and thankfully not caused me to talk about because he's echoed basically a large portion of my experience as well. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of folk that are currently artificial life hobbyists, artificial life developers, artificial life curious, Justin, what would you say aside from don't do it associated with actually creating a startup? Well, I would, <laughs> I mean, creating a startup can be a tremendous amount of fun. I mean, my famous, uh, the thing I always tell people, and I think it's backed by pretty solid research, is that 100 people will start a business. 95 of them will fail miserably and lose every penny that they invested. Four of the people will break even or make a very modest profit. And one person will make more money than you can possibly even imagine. And I like the odds. So I think if you're starting a business, if you're really wanting to make a lot of money and, and, and take a company big so that you have a liquidity event, whether that's a, uh, taking it public on whether the alternative investment markets in London or New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or any of the other number of markets. And, and thanks to globalization, you know, entrepreneurs have the opportunity to explore uh, other markets. I mean, one of our newest um, directors is, uh, you know, um, helped take a Chinese company public on uh, dual listing it on two different um, stock exchanges, New York Stock Exchange, as well as the alternative uh, AIM in London. So you don't have to kind of lock yourself down anymore uh, as an American. I mean, I'm an American, but you can actually start to broaden your horizons and look at the Chinese markets and other places. So I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for uh, entrepreneurs in the artificial life community. And what we've been trying to do is create a startup vehicle that does not necessarily require venture capital. We don't take, we don't have any venture capital money, uh, as a matter of fact. And um, instead, what we're doing is using uh, some principles that came out of a very famous book called One for Many, written by D. Hawk. And D. Hawk was the founder of Visa. And by applying the principles, the same principles that he used to create the Visa brand, we've applied those same principles to developing the Simudine brand, 
And it's resonated, I think, pretty, pretty well with some of the experience that Bruce Damers had with his chaotic organization, Digital Space. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, about the chaotic concept? Yes. The chaotic concept is an idea of, effectively, the legal structure would be a reverse holding company. So the company is actually held by its members. So in the early days of Visa, DHOC was um, saying, okay, well, we need to come up with a new organization that needs to be held by its members. In this case, it was the banks. Um, because the banks individually uh, could not build the infrastructure necessary to do real-time processing of, at that time, credit card transactions. And interestingly, just as an aside, DHOC actually was more in favor of debit cards rather than credit cards, but that's a whole other story. So anyway, so the idea here was that they said, well, let's pull our resources together, let's collaborate, but at the same time, let's, let's have competition. So it's competition and collaboration together. And it's that competition and collaboration which creates a very vibrant organism, which grew, as we all know, incredibly fast. Visa is now um, one of the largest organizations in the world. Uh, for something like four or five trillion dollars, uh, goes through the through the systems on a daily basis. I don't know how. I mean, it's huge amounts of money. I don't even know the exact amounts. In the case of Visa, you're not talking about three guys putting in twenty bucks a piece. You're talking about banks. Um, in terms of in terms of artificial life development and individuals. How do you see that same? Uh, how do you see that same model being applied? Frankly, when he started Visa, the actual financial resources dedicated were incredibly modest, and belies the fact that they were actually banks. The fact of the matter was, everyone thought DHOC was an absolute nutcase when he came up with the idea, and it was only tolerated because of his relationship, I believe, with the Bank of America. So. Yes, they put a little bit of money in, but nothing like on the order of what we would might anticipate think or think about today. They actually thought he was crazy when he did it. Um, so it was very modest. He, was, he actually says that the reason why he did it was he couldn't convince the banks to actually put the money in. And it, with the benefit of hindsight, a chaotic organization is an incredible way for an organization to grow very rapidly and fairly compensate all the members that contribute to its success, unlike many IPOs or unlike most organizations where, you know, you get, you maybe get, I mean, I don't know how many people out there have gotten stock options that go underwater. Like the whole dot-com craze was just ridiculous in the sense that, you know, oh, join our organization. We're going to give you stock options. Well, the stock options were worthless because either they were not publicly tradable or those options were underwater because, you know, the stock market tanked. Whereas the chaotic organization principle is just slightly different. You're actually taking money out every day or every month, and there's an opportunity. You're always having a positive cash flow. It's just designed very differently than this whole dot-com craziness where basically you'd ask an entrepreneur, how are you doing? They'd say, oh, we're doing great. We got another $20 million from the venture capitalists. Well, that doesn't mean you're doing great. It just means you're scamming you know, investors who don't know any better. Who are and then your investors you. will scam you in the long run. <laughs> Most of the investors lost their shirts. Very, you know, Venture capital is one of the world's hardest businesses because you're constantly having failures. And so all, you, have, you have to rely on that one out of 1,000 or one out of 100 home run that generates the returns to recoup all of the losses. So you maybe make you know, a $100 million investment spread across dozens of different organizations, and of those dozens of organizations, maybe only one of them is successful, and that barely covers you know, the, the losses that you've incurred from all the other failures. Certainly, but the, I mean, the venture capital system is about also gaining a percentage of control as well and, and using that control to, uh, you know, to, to leverage whatever change is necessary. So in an applied example, Gerald, I, and you decide that we want to create an artificial life startup, and we all decide on a monthly basis that we're going to pay our own expenses and contribute our development to some pool. Now, Gerald and I are slightly more on the development end, and you're slightly more on the uh, approach uh, business's end. Is this how this works out in a kind of applied setting with regards to people? Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. Okay, so uh, the, the idea with regards to the banks, I couldn't understand in terms of the actual development of the technology because the development of the technology still appeared to occur with an individual. You will very rarely have a situation where three or four individuals will come together around a single person developing technology in the field of artificial life in particular. You're always going to have, in, in, the, in this example, it is not money down, it is actually work put in rather than actual financial contribution. 
So you'll have some people that will develop various aspects of the technology and then others who will go and, you know, do the, the groundwork in terms of selling the technology. Is this the way this model translates to actual individuals? I think it, the way it translates to individuals is as follows. I mean, it depends on, let's say that if we're talking about a code base that's already established and all we need to do is take it out to the market, the clients, and get them to pay to use it, that's very simple. You split the money based on the formulas that we use at Simu, I mean, with my company, the company I work for, uh, which is as follows. You get 50% of the money that goes to those that are operating and doing the work. Uh, another 30% goes to the team, because it's always a team that sells the work. So, you know, anytime you're selling a project, you're always going to have to involve the development team in order to communicate to the potential buyer the value of what it is they're buying. So that, that, that same team that did the technology also has to be involved in the sales process, and you have to compensate them for that sales process. So there's another 30% that goes to that. And the remainder of the, the other 20%, uh, roughly 10% of it goes to uh, building up the Simidot, our company. I would just say my name, it's the company's name, um, uh, the, from a branding and marketing perspective and making sure that the, the branding is, is established. And the other 10% is uh, allows the members to actually um, uh, reinvest that money that they've earned back into the business in return for stock and net asset value. And we have a commercial director who kind of has all the legal details and a financial director and legal director that handle the financial, but in principle, that's how it works. Now, the other question you're talking about is, well, how do you handle research and development, which might be, you know, lots of money up front and, you know, it might be a horizon two sort of activity, um, meaning it's not immediate returns. Is that the kind of the question you're asking? Certainly. How do you fund that R&D? Yeah? Well, my understanding with regards to my own experience with these kind of enterprises is that you find an equivalent value of cash that you're actually donating in terms of time and technology. Yep. You, Tom, you had a very good comment on one of your, your podcasts where the value is not necessarily in the code. It's in the intellectual ideas. Certainly. Do you remember when you certainly. said that? Yeah, certainly, certainly. I've said it. I've said it probably three times in bio to life so far. <laughs> really? What makes yeah. you? What makes you think that? Uh, a wide variety of things, mainly feedback that I get with regards to these podcasts. But uh, we're talking here about an applied example. I mean, my my understanding is firstly, you would be extraordinarily lucky to stumble upon an existing code base that would be ideally tailored towards a particular end user. So I do appreciate the need for tuning. But oftentimes the tuning from the technical perspective is a large portion of the, the development time frame. So what you're saying here is that basically the, the development component is monetized in some abstract way, which is different than the actual time contribution. I'm not sure I understand. Maybe you can elaborate. Okay. So again, taking this back to a very generalist level, the listening audience that is still listening, I'd like to thank you for your ears. Gerald, you and I get together. We have a shared code base that Gerald and I have worked on, but it's not going to be tailored for a particular end user. You, however, have half a dozen end users that you think it would be ideal for with a certain amount of, of work that is required. You go to the end users, perhaps, as you say, you take Gerald and, and me along for the ride so we can understand the end user's specific requirement, but there is still a body of work that needs to be done on the code base. Maybe we all have the same amount of money to contribute, but the value that is put in there equates, equates on some idea that everyone's time is equally valuable. Am I correct in that? Is that how that works out? I'm, I'm not, I mean, in terms, you mean for past work or future work? For future work. Oh, well, the future work is just based on whatever the day rate for the person. So let's say that you're, you know, let's say that we go to the client and we say, look, um, to be quite honest with you, I think the artificial life community, we don't, at least from what I've seen, from I've looked at code base, I've looked at your code, I've looked at a whole bunch of different people's code. I've looked at the market opportunity, and I gave the talk at TTI Vanguard. There is clearly a market demand for what we already have in place. We can call it whatever we want to call it. We can call it uh, whatever we want to call it. And the fact of the matter is the market is ready for it. So we take it out to the market. We say, look, uh, you, know, you pay us X number of dollars. They say, yep, we'll take that. We're going to do, you know, we you know, say, here's, what we're, here's how we're going to take the existing code base that we already have, customize it for your specific need, whether it's for doing X, Y, or Z. Once we've done that, we then uh, pay the development teams for doing the work. 
and they they get a very fair they get a you know market uh, day rate for that. So it just depends on whatever their day rate is. Fascinating, Gerald. Do you have any questions so far? I'm I'm fascinated by the difficulty that Justin has in uh, finding words for for what's. Uh, it, it, I think you know. On the one hand, the, um, the the idea of artificial life is in a sense a hard sell. I mean, I think Simudine is taking a really excellent uh, angle at it by saying uh, you know by using the phrase simulation science and and uh, putting it in that, in that frame. Um, but in uh, you know. Uh, to get to to be worth money, something has to do something, and uh, a lot of the AI stuff that I've seen. Uh, I spent this week actually diving a bit into things like uh, Avida and uh, and uh, Arcus and, uh, and and the other things that are out there. And you know, a lot of it I see as um, you know fascinating for research, just like Tierra was. But um, you know, Tierra has been out there for how long now? And uh, is there a, a, a fascinating real-world application that, that's uh, blowing somebody's mind right now? And I'm not so sure. You know, a lot of the stuff was just built for research, which which makes. Well, I can give an example. I can give an example of a real-life uh, example of how we'll make money. Okay, so here's here's one seismic survey analysis. That is the process of finding hydrocarbons underneath the ground requires a level of pattern recognition. Currently, the pattern recognition is done by humans with their intuition and their eyesight to look for features under the ground that give the indication that oil is present. Now, if we can, using uh, something like uh, the code base that Travis has worked on or the, the code base that other people have worked on, actually get a pattern recognition system to grow or to evolve, then we will be replacing the highly expensive human resource of actual humans uh, which are actually in short demand right now because of a variety of different demographic and sociological reasons, with computer systems that can actually explore reams and reams of data looking for those sorts of features that indicate, hey, that's a salt dome or that's a fault. Uh, don't drill there. Drill here. Um, and that is measured. The value of something like that sort of system is measured in the billions, not millions. So you know, selling a concept to a proof of concept for doing that sort of analysis work and say, look, we've got some some software code. We think he can do this. We need X or or 10x or 50x to actually do it into an operational system. Uh, then the clients, whether it's an integrated uh, you know, oil services firm or an integrated or a major, they're very keen to do that. You know, and there's and there's just opportunity after opportunity where we could leverage the technology, bring it together, and solve some of the most pressing problems that we're facing as as a, as a world. Um, using these technologies. You mentioned that the humans that are doing this or have done this work in the past are no longer there for a variety of reasons. If we can explore that a little bit, because I'm concerned that there are actually large numbers of highly technical humans that are in fact devalued by the economic requirements for their services. In exploring these kind of technologies, you need to do an analysis with regards to why there aren't enough people that are doing it if it's so lucrative. I mean, look at, you know, accident insurance law in the U.S., for example. There seem to be a lot of people that are doing that still. So when you say immediately that there aren't humans that, have, that are there currently, for me personally, that identifies that there is a potential that whilst the analysis may be necessary to find a certain percentage of, of hydrocarbons in the, in the rocks or what have you, the economic reality of the companies that are involved are that they are not willing to pay humans to do it currently which seems to indicate that there may be some difference between the numbers oh. that you're stating. Yeah, no, it's not that they they would pay the humans whatever they want to do the work. The problem is, is that because oil prices were historically low, this is a classic system dynamics problem of oscillation. So when oil prices were high, say, you know, some point in the past, salaries were high, that drew young people into fields like geology and seismic survey analysis because they saw the opportunity to make you know, good salaries when they graduated and would have successful careers. But then, you know, due to market forces and other factors, oil prices declined. Um, it was less of a draw, so you had fewer and fewer graduates at that particular time um, actually leaving school and becoming you know, qualified um, uh, reservoir engineers or qualified seismologists. And, and what we're facing right now is that uh, a lot of, of the really experienced people that do this analysis are retiring, 
and the young people that should be stepping in to fill their shoes are just physically not there. Just, there's not any trained people. Now, that doesn't mean that there's lots of students that are rushing into these programs around the world in the hopes that oil prices will remain high and therefore they'll have, you know, you know lucrative compensation. This happens but, all the time. But just with, regards, with regards to the oil in particular, isn't the consumer the one who's actually – there is no actual delta with regards to the oil company's profits. The oil companies aren't losing money currently. They're charging it directly to the consumers. The only reason that this would become a valuable process again is if that the oil companies, for whatever reason, because they could no longer charge the consumers such, you know, high amounts or what have you, would then, the value would then be, and we have a certain amount of resources that we have to actually get out of the, out of the ground, which isn't the case currently. A lot of these areas are actually based on quite complicated fluctuations, which have nothing to do with the human interaction, and particularly with regards to artificial life solutions. The use of artificial life solutions needs to be particularly tailored to things that have both contemporary and future need. Now, there may be a future need for this, but my concern currently, if there is a limit of humans, I do understand the kind of oscillating cycles with regards to education and things like that, but the oil companies are still getting the money from, you know, the, the people paying at the pump, so to speak. It's when there is the delta where they can't get that anymore and they, the resources then become extremely valuable. That is the point where you start selling, you know, artificial life technology. But also that will probably be the point where humans are actually going to be paid a reasonable amount to actually go in and do it. So we need to find technologies which are not necessarily competing with humans that will earn the money, but are in fact doing a far superior job than humans ever could. Yeah. I think the most important thing that I tell people is that artificial life does not replace humans. It augments our capabilities. That's all. There is no way that these computer programs that we're developing are going to replace us. It merely augments our capabilities to analyze more and more data or to do other things that, you know, the algorithms that we grow. So whether it's in the energy field or whether it's in defense applications or whether it's looking at financial markets or whether it's looking at healthcare. I mean, the most interesting project that we've gotten recently with respect to artificial life is saying, well, can we grow an algorithm that would enable us to improve the quality of healthcare in the United States of America for some of the world, some of the U.S.'s poorest people by understanding more effectively how all this data interacts. And so it's a pattern recognition problem. And the, the, the programmer that we had working on it was doing an incredibly good job. We've got lots of very good results. So, Justin, isn't, isn't the pattern recognition problem with regards to healthcare in the U.S. solely with regards to Congress in the U.S.? I mean, isn't that the pattern recognition? Shouldn't you be simulating the way the Congress is funded by various health lobby groups? I mean, won't that actually solve that problem? I mean, I, I, I have friends in the health services community that pitch artificial life to me. But every time when you look at the you know, kind of meta-analysis, as we've kind of partially done with regards to oil, the problem in the U.S. is to do with high-level institutional corruption. Did you say a mental analysis, like as in the mental meta, meta. Oh, meta. Okay. I mean, I think my concern with regards to these things is that they need to be home runs. And the issues with regards to analysis and the feedback that you can give, for an artificial life simulation in order to understand the way, for example, the pharmaceutical industry operates in the U.S., uh, that is a very high level and completely uh, irrational for all the artificial life simulations I've seen concept. So the kind of analysis with regards to healthcare in particular is going to be really problematic in terms of the way that all these lobby groups actually interact with Congress. So let's, let's move from this and let's look at the artificial life startup again. We have a kind of mix of products and services, as you've described, but mainly to do with tailoring existing products through services. Can you describe that mix a little bit, please, for an artificial life startup? Certainly. I mean, it's a... Uh, I did. I don't want to dominate the conversation if Gerald wants to throw in here, but if, if you're happy for me to keep going, guys, I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah, go ahead. And so I, I think that, um, well, the proof is in the pudding in the sense that it seems to me that clients are paying us to actually do this type of work. And if there's a market demand, I don't see why we should not try to fulfill it. And it seems to me that we've, as a community, at least my understanding of the community and looking at some of the materials that people have prepared 
and how they're presenting it to the markets, we've missed out on a tremendous opportunity to to take these technologies and, if you will, communicate them to decision makers in a way that allows them to buy it. So this is artificial life as services with core products which are continuing to be refined. Is this the model that you're describing? Well, the way I, the way I actually sell it is the software as a service. Uh, so you know, if you want to call it an ASP model or or whatever, you know, what we try to what we try to do is go into our clients and we're not trying to sell them a product or a service. We're trying to sell them a solution to the problem that they're facing. So we're not, we're not going to we've got a product, buy it, or we're not going into them saying, hey, we've got services. Why don't you buy our services and pay us a day rate? What we do is we go in and we say, hey, you've got a very difficult problem that you're facing. And it, it might be any number of different things. It's you know, faster time to finding oil, or it might be um, identifying bad guys, or whatever you want to define as a bad guy. Or it could be um, helping a supply chain improve its, its, its efficiencies. Any number of different problems. Then we go in and we provide a solution to that problem. And the money that we make is proportionate to the problem that we've removed for our clients. So if we've gone into a client and improved the operations of their supply chain, historically simulation scientists or complexity scientists would say, okay, you know, that's a, that's a 150000 or 300000 U.S. dollar project, and we'll do that, and we're going to pay our resources, and they're going to do it for you. And then lo and behold, what happens? At the end of the two-month project, you've just saved that company $200 million a year for the next five years. So you've generally made a billion dollars for this company, and you've walked away, the company, with, three, let's say, 300000 U.S. Well, that's disproportionate to the value that you've generated for that client. And it's ridiculous. You can't be generating billion-dollar savings for the Global 1000 and walking away with $300,000. That just doesn't work. So what we do is we say, hey, we've got some very compelling science some very compelling technology. We're going to help you solve some of the world's thorniest problems, and we're going to take a proportionate share of the, of, of the savings we generated for you. So in terms of, um, I don't want to say returning customers, but in terms of medium to long-term feedback with regards to this model without necessarily talking about specifics, can you discuss some of the kind of conceptual successes you've had and things that have needed to be retuned in this regard? Um, well, uh, Successes in terms of like revenue numbers. I mean, that's the. Or are you talking about? I'm talking just purely about uh, happy happy clients that are saying this is now generating revenue. We want you to come back and tune some other aspect. Sorry, this is a question that's also coming from the chat as well. Uh, and who's asking that one? <laughs> Their name is anonymous. Five zero zero five zero six six. Well, uh, anonymous five zero zero six. Why don't you log in with your name so we know who you are? Um, I think I, that's fair, but I mean, it's a good question. Um, the question is what again? The question is, uh, whilst one can talk about this in an abstract sense and you can talk this about, about uh, potentials in the future, uh, do you have contemporary examples where this has occurred and you have, and I didn't want to use the term returning customers because that's not what you described, but where you have happy clients that are looking to use artificial life services in other areas? The most immediate example that comes to mind is um, a client of ours that uh, paid us, uh, and I mean, I'll throw some numbers out there. These are legitimate numbers, and if anyone wants to audit, feel free to give me a call. 60, uh, I'm trying to do the translation from sterling to dollars. Give it um, in sterling. Our, our listeners are very savvy, so you don't need to... Uh... 30, so 30,000 pounds sterling, which was a effectively a two-week engagement to explore the, the ramifications of using these technologies to solve a very pressing problem that they were facing. And the results were very successful, and they came back and said, yeah, let's solve the problem. And it's going to be about 300,000 pounds sterling, which is around 600,000 U.S. Uh, and they pulled the trigger. We're now moving forward to solve that problem, which will take us about two months. Once we've solved that problem, then we, we are, what we're doing for them is we're, we're creating different simulation models, in this particular case, four simulation models that uh, capture the physics of some very complicated processes, uh, in their factory and across their supply chain. We will then, the, the, as we look at evolving or growing that relationship with that client, we will start to make other models of other core processes in there. It's, it's a very large organization. And then starting to link those models together using the platform that we have. So, so, so what you're describing here with regards to a platform is actually fundamentally a product that you're creating in-house for future customers and current customers? Is that what you're talking about? 
when I talk about the platform, what I'm talking about is three core technologies that handle three important things from modeling the physics of reality. Number one, time, temporal. So in order to model the physics of reality from a temporal perspective, you need to be able to model using both discrete and continuous modeling formalisms. Number two, space. You need to know where you are physically in the real world. So that's geospatial. So the two elements that we, we call it SimLib, which is the Library of Simulation Services for Handling Continuous and Discrete. The second, GeoLib, which is the Library of Services. By services, I mean software code that's been written but deployed as an ASP for handling geospatial issues. And the third one is those, those services that handle the evolutionary aspects, um, the adaptive and emergent behaviors, if you will, that arise from evolution by natural selection. So the three libraries are those, you know, the one that handles time, the one that handles space, and the third one that handles evolution. Right. And these, these really are things that are going to mature and you're going to continue to develop in-house, or are they um, already done? No, they're the community. The idea is the community of people that join with Simudine will actually build this. So think of it, Simudine is a way of, of tapping into the open source ethos but allowing everyone who's part of the open source movement to actually get money if there is a liquidity event. So let's look at Linux, for example, or Linux, or, or the, other, the other flavors of Unix that thousands of people have labored on out of passion and out of love. The fact of the matter is many of those people are not multimillionaires as a result of their work, even though some of the people that have, have monetized it, the Red Hat team comes to mind, are doing relatively well. So all we were trying to do is say, hmm, how can we create a brand and an organizational structure that everyone who participates in it, I mean everyone who participates in it and who signs up to our values, the principles, the vision, and the, and the, and the, and the orders of practice, all realize the benefits of any liquidity events. And what I mean liquidity when there's lots of money that comes in. Right. So, so that's the, it's not just, you know, a chaotic organization, if, if you were to say to me, Justin, okay, you know, so you're going to build all these technologies and, and, uh, and how are you going to do it? Well, the only way we can actually do it is by having everybody who's in the community work collaboratively to make it a reality. Um, the other option would be, you know, raise $200 million or $300 million or, or $100 million, um, and hire everybody like Biosprew. So Biosprew did this. They raised $20 million. They went on a hiring spree. They hired a bunch of very bright people who were like stray cats. They put them all into a room. And they said, everybody go, you know, that way. Well, they're stray cats. They had no desire to do that. So it's a far better approach to use the kind of the open source movement where you kind of log in, log out, um, write the code. It gets reviewed by other you know, core team members or other people before it's checked in. And over time, that code base continues to grow. But the idea is as you check code in, as you participate in the success of the organization, that's rewarded financially. And in, terms knows. Of, in terms of your original description, these people are being paid an hourly rate, though, for their code contribution time. Yep, and they also get, they get, a, they get a normal market rate, but they also have the opportunity to earn um, stock in the business if they want to. Some people choose not to. People are making money in real time, but they also have the opportunity to make more money in the future should there be a liquidity event. The broader aims of the biotech community are very different uh, in terms of education and outreach. Can you talk a little bit about reconciling uh, education and outreach and these kind of community efforts with regards to something like Simeodine, Justin? Well, for example, when, when I do Graytham in London, um, I pay for that out of my own pocket. Um, it is not sponsored by, nor will it ever accept any money from Simeodine or any other organization. Um, there is a critical and very important place for academics and, and non-sponsored research, whether it's hobbyists that are doing work at home or hackers or, or uh, scientists at research laboratories who are effectively funded by the government usually. You just have to have the mental bandwidth to, to, to make that delineation in your mind and say, okay, now I'm working as an individual. Okay, now I'm working as part of, of, of Simudine. Now I'm working as part of my own company. And every member who joins Simudine is a company, whether it's a one-person company or a, the largest partner we have currently is they do, uh, uh, they have something like 90, um, 95 full-time staff. And, you know, they, they turn over something like 20 million pounds sterling. And they're one of the members of Simudine. 
what that means is that we have tremendous access to a tremendous amount of resources because everybody, you know, it just makes it easy. So in terms of you have to have, Great Thumb is all about, you know, a non-sponsored opportunity for sharing and communication that's not tied, so you can speak freely, which is why, like, tonight, I'm actually, I was being very careful not, to, I'm trying not to mention my company, Seminine, the company I work for, too much, because this is not about Seminine. This is me as an individual talking to other individuals in the community who I think are very intelligent, who have very good capabilities, and I'm just telling them, Let's figure out a way for us all to make money together, whether that's through digital space. I think Bruce Damer's business is excellent. There's another really cool company out there that we could all be collaborating with a lot more effectively. He's come up with some incredible ideas with his Evo Grid and, and, and some other things like that. So I think that's a huge opportunity. And I believe he also espouses Keyword. So I don't want this to be about me working for a particular brand name, <laughs> even though I believe that even though I believe that brand name has the potential to easily reward lots of people. Unfortunately, we're running short of time. Our topic next week will be the secret sauce, which really is a continuation, I think, from this discussion about whether there is a, a killer app, a killer set of technologies, or whether we're all moving towards something uh, that will change the face of artificial life, or uh, maybe it already exists or whether this is actually um, conceptually possible or actually possible. Anyway, look, thank you both very much for the opportunity to, uh, to chat today with regards to this topic. I think we'll probably need to have a part two. I don't think we've covered necessarily all the parts that, uh, that we could have, uh, could have discussed. Can I mention one thing, Tom, before we, uh, before we sign off here? Great Certainly. Thumbs Netherlands. Great, thumb, great Thumbs Netherlands. We're trying to set it up. So... Uh, Go to Darwin at home and contact me if you're in the Netherlands and you're interested in maybe participating in a Greytham get-together. And also via the Greytham blog for all the other, well, including Gerald's link to the Greytham Netherlands. So thank you both very much for the opportunity to chat today. The next one will be 8 p.m. Pacific on Friday. Thank you both.